Hello Dice Stormers, uh, welcome to another episode of Dice Stormers Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I wanted to do something a little bit different. We can't all sort of gather and congregate in the same place because of the COVID-9 disease and we are working out ways of, of meeting up online and doing it like, uh, like other groups do it, but we wanted to, I wanted to take a little bit of an opportunity just to produce a little bit of content by myself and talk a little bit about Descent into Avernus Baldur's Gate. Um, I've been playing and DMing this this game for some of the other Dice Stormers and I've gathered some information and some, some ideas from a DM's perspective that I thought I would pass on to you. Now, so spoiler alert, this is going to be for DMs uh, only and I am going to be talking about stuff that's in the module. So if you are a player, you go on and do about your, your day and be in isolation wherever this stuff's not for you. So, so we're going to be talking about uh, DMs uh, Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus from the DM side. So with that in mind, uh, let's jump into it. So the game is called Descent into Avernus, but it's actually not all set in Avernus. Uh, the first five levels, five or six levels, depending on, on how you go, are actually in Baldur's Gate and, and on the Prime Material Plane in the Forgotten Realms. So it's worth noting that that that's going to happen and uh, you're not immediately going to get to Avernus. And that does actually bring a kind of an interesting twist about because when you, it starts off like a normal D&D adventure and you're, you're sort of going along and solving problems and fighting bad guys and all of that sort of stuff. But then when you get to Avernus, it takes a hard left turn and becomes a very different adventure altogether and a very different flavor. The pitch line for this game when they were pitching it in Wizards of the Coast was Mad Max in Hell and I think that's a really good way of describing what the players find when they get to Avernus. But for the moment we're in Baldur's Gate and uh, we're, we're just sort of getting to know our characters and things like that. So it starts out in Baldur's Gate and this is a good, pretty good uh, representation of the city. So you can see it's sort of dirty and mucky and smoky and brown and, and all of that sort of stuff. And, and that's a pretty good indication of what Baldur's Gate is like. And the very first encounter you have is, is right here at the Basilisk Gate. In fact, this vista is actually a, a really good way of kind of looking forward and, and tackling the, the rest of the time that you spend in Baldur's Gate. So all down here is the lower city. And you start off here, um, you go to the Elfsong Tavern, which is only about a half an hour or an hour's walk away from this point. And then from there, they send you to the bathhouse, um, which is over here, maybe, maybe a little bit off screen, maybe just uh, at the edge of, of the, the map there. And then uh, finally, you, you do a couple of things around the city and you end up in the, in the upper city dealing with the Van Thamper estate. So that's a kind of a basic overview of what you're going to be doing in Baldur's Gate. But to bring it back, you're here at the Basilisk Gate and you, you've come at a kind of, you've been summoned there by the guard. Now, this is an interesting take on the, the, the tropes of the way that all the players get together. Um, you know, it throws away the trope of we all meet in a tavern or we're all sent to the same place. The, the game assumes that you already know each other and that you're already part of a team within the Flaming Fists, which is the group of police. And I say police with a question mark because I don't know that the police is quite the right word. But the Flaming Fists are more a, sort of a collection of mercenaries and 
um, uh, you know, people who are paid, captains who are paid by, by the, the, the city to keep the peace, but there's a lot of, you know, hired hands in the middle there. And that makes the whole enterprise a little bit morally ambiguous. You know, they're not really there to defend the city because they're just there to cut a paycheck and, and they have very little sort of pride in their work. But we'll get to that in a little bit. At the moment, you turn up and these gates, the Eastern Gates, the Basilisk Gate, has been shut because there is an influx of refugees from a town called Eltruel. And they've closed the entire gates and, and the city off from these people. A couple of them have managed to slip in before the, uh, before the gates were closed. But there's a whole unruly mob outside and there's a very tense situation that the players find themselves drawn into. They are summoned there by Captain Zodge and... As you arrive there, there's all of these sort of tensions and a couple of fists have, have flown and people are shoving each other and tensions are getting high. And it's a good opportunity for the players to kind of um, uh, step into that and, and use their skills and their abilities rather than their combat, combat uh, skills to quell the crowd and to kind of make peace a little bit. So they're there and they're... they're um, uh, required to, to make things a little bit safer for everybody involved. So that's a great way of introducing the characters and their abilities to the, to the scene. And I would highly recommend that you lean into that and try and not make it a combat encounter and a little bit more of a role-playing encounter. You'll get to find out how the players want to play their characters and how they might, you know, sort of, um, whether they're a, an upfront brash person that uses intimidation or that perhaps, you know, is a bit more sly and uses persuasion to try and get people to just calm down a little bit. So there's, there's a number of different um, avenues that the players can take here. And it's a really good way, especially as level one characters, in the first kind of scenario that they come across to, to give an idea of what their player character is like. So the second thing that, the, that will happen is Zodge will take you aside and, and give you a mission. And the mission is all outlined in the book. It's to go to a, a tavern called the Elf Song Tavern and meet a, a, an informant of his, a snitch, called Tarina. And the players are then given a copper medallion with the Flaming Fist logo on it in order to authorise themselves as you know members of the Flaming Fist and to actually use it to identify themselves. This is a fairly big deal, and I think, you know, you should probably make make a bit more of a deal of it than I did when I was when I was DMing, DMing this because this is kind of a cool thing and it gives them a, an idea and a sort of a license to to use that as 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 they go through the adventure. So they get this and they head off to the Elf Song Tavern. If they don't, there are ways that Captain Zodge can sort of force them into doing what he wants. The, he has spies throughout the city and he can send these people after, uh, send a uh, fairly impressive force after the player characters to kind of get them to do what, they, what he asks. So if they do go off on a tangent, you can, you can um, uh, you, you know, enforce that a little bit better. But uh, he offers them 200 gold and, you know, obviously his undying gratitude, which is apparently, according to him, worth considerably more. I don't know. Words of wind, um, Zodge. You can, you can say what you like. And then he heads off. Then the player characters head off to the Offsong Tavern. Now, the Offsong Tavern is here, as I said, about, you know, uh, an hour or half an hour's walk from Basilisk Gate. 
And again, here you see the layout of the, the city. You've got the lower city here, the upper city, the Offsong Tavern here, the bathhouse up here, and a, a bar, a floating bar called the Low Lantern, which will come into, into, uh, into, into a play a little bit later. And when you get to the Offsong Tavern, obviously uh, this is a map. It's got two stories. It's, it's a fairly kind of standard looking tavern. And you get to, uh, there's a wealth of role-playing experiences here. The, the tavern itself sings. This is why it's called the Elf Song Tavern. No one knows why it sings. The guy who bought it doesn't know why it sings, but he's very proud of his tavern and more than willing to chat to the PCs and try and help them out as long as they butter him up a bit and ask him a bit about, about the tavern and, and, you know, get their way that way. And he's very proud of the tavern and... and you will actually hear the tavern sing when the players arrive at some point. So just pick a pick a nice moment and uh, and have the tavern start up its song. Now the song is in Elvish, and so you won't nobody if nobody in the party speaks Elvish, they won't be able to decipher it. The barman is Elvish, and he can obviously just you know decipher it for you. But the first time that the tavern sings, it's not a um, it's the lyrics aren't listed anywhere in the book, and of course my characters, one of them spoke Elvish, and they said, well, "What are they singing about?" And I actually had no idea, and I kind of had to do that DMs thing where you fluff and make up stuff. I think I said something about spring and the changing of seasons, and you know, whatever. So um, just be prepared for that. The lyrics of the first song aren't in the in the in the description in the book. The second time that the tavern sings the lyrics change. And this is the first time in the knowledge of anybody in the tavern that the lyrics have changed. And this is a key moment. The lyrics of that song are in the book. So if you feel up to it, you can sing them. I did. I practiced it the night beforehand. And, and so I felt pretty confident to do it on camera in front of my, my friends. And one of them is an opera singer. So, so I think I got a pass from him. So... It's a good, it's, it's a lovely little song and you can kind of feel the cadence of it and they've obviously spent a fair bit of time on it and there is nuggets of gold in there. So even if um, the, the players, if none of the players speak, speak Elvish, which is kind of unlikely, but if none of them speak Elvish, uh, you can translate it for them. And, and uh, you know, there, there is really good information in there about the fall of El Truel and the companion and, and all of that sort of bit. So it's, it's really worthwhile. Then um, you need to go and find Tarina. And uh, if you find Tarina before or after the second version of the song, I think, I think it's fine. Tarina in the, the uh, actual uh, module is up here on the second floor playing a game of Baldur's Bones. And Baldur's Bones is kind of cool. It's kind of like 21 but played with dice. It's like blackjack and you roll dice and you try and get as close to or under 21 as you can. And you, you, if, you don't, if you go... Uh, over that you go bust and you lose your money. So she's up there playing fairly successfully um, Baldur's Bones against a whole bunch of other guys and you need to kind of find her and talk to her quietly and try and find out what she has to say about the threats to Baldur's Gate, which is what Zodge wants you to find out about. And the idea here is that she won't give up any information until you protect her from a group of pirates that's come that she knows is on the lookout for her and that they're coming to the Offsong Tavern that night. So 
you kind of need to wait until the pirates get there. So as soon as you're ready, as soon as the, the mood is right, have the pirates come into the tavern and demand to talk to Tarina. Now, whether they identify her or whether you get the players get in their face or, or whatever, um, it's an interesting conundrum for the players because they have to protect this, this woman if they want her information and they want to get their 200 gold from Captain Zodge. So you need to make sure that the players are in a position where they, they're, they're ready to take on the, the pirates. I'm not going to lie, this is a TPK situation ready and waiting to happen. The pirates, there's nine of them, and one of them, most of them are sort of first or second level characters, and there's one of them that's a little bit more powerful. They are far and away a, 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 a match for the party and could easily overpower them and kill them all if they wanted to. So as a DM, you're kind of looking for an opportunity for this to not become a, a TPK situation. And for me, that happened when one of the player characters stood up, made an illusion of a flaming fist in the air, made his voice boom out, you know, and threatened them and intimidate, intimidated them. And I gave him a, an intimidation role with, a, with, a, with advantage on that. And he successfully intimidated the, the main guy into realising that the place was swarming with cops, and if he if he made a, a move against Tarina right there and then, that he would be in a lot of trouble himself. So that was how my players got out of that situation. If you do have some really headstrong players who are just going to go all out and out combat, they're probably going to get killed. So it is something that you need to be aware of. So after that, after the that little encounter is, is played out. Tarina is thankful for the party for, for saving her bacon against the pirates. Oh, the pirate ship is also called the Uncivil Serpent, which is just fantastic. It's a great play on words. and um, Yeah, it's, it's really worth mentioning um, to the players. I, I can't think of a better name for a pirate ship. Anyway, um, Tarina is thankful. She gives the information that the players need, which is that uh, there is a, a cult of the dead three, the, the, the three dead gods of Bane, Baal and Merkel um, are operating outside of a bathhouse in the city. And that bathhouse is something that the players need to go to next and kind of sort out. But we're going to leave it there. If you do like this uh, little description of how I handled the first couple of levels of uh, the Descent into Avernus, please give me a thumbs up. If there was anything that I missed or you want me to explain a little bit more, put it in the comments. And um, please subscribe to this and um, I'll be sure to go into a little bit more detail about what happened in the Dungeon of the Dead 3. Thanks everybody. Have a great evening. Stay safe and, uh, uh, and isolated. Bye. Hello Dustormers, Derek here, and welcome to Descent into Avernus, the DM's Guide Part 2. Uh, the response to Part 1 has seems to be really good, and there's been a lot of positive comments, so 
uh, I thought we'd kick on and do a part two. Please, if there's anything that you would like me to cover that I didn't cover, please mention it in the comments. And if you'd like to get a notification when these uh, videos come out, please subscribe and press the like button and uh, the notification button. And you'll get updates when I, when I release new videos along these lines. So, with that in mind, let's jump into it. So when we left our characters uh, in the last session, they had uh, gone to the Offsong Tavern and they'd gotten the information from Tarina about who was sowing discord in the city and who was going out and murdering and making the, uh, the Flaming Fists look bad. The players have a couple of options at this point. They can go back and report to Zodge or they can just uh, take it upon themselves to go and, and investigate the bathhouse, where this, where, which is a front for the, the operatives here. If they go back to Zodge, he basically sends them there in the same method anyway, so um, you, can, you can play that either way. On the way to the bathhouse, uh, it, the module suggests very strongly that they're going to need to be second level, and I would heartily agree with this. Um, there is all sorts of dangers in the bathhouse and below, and it's going to be very tough if they're not level, level two. Um, and I would definitely say, you know, just to go off, off um, uh, script at this point, that I'm, I'm always had a little bit, a bit of a weird relationship with leveling up in D&D, you know. It just seems strange to me that you, you finish an encounter or you kill a kobold and all of a sudden you have all of these new abilities and new things that you can do and, and you're stronger and faster and better and have more spells and... And I think I even made a joke about it when we were doing a recording of this, like you walk up the hill and you level up as you were walking up the hill and, and um, you know, the, the, the team was kind of, oh, let's walk up more hills. But it does have that kind of weird um, vibe to me. And certainly, you know, when I'm, when I'm looking at the, there's homebrews and rules in the optional rules in the DMG that say you have to train for a month or have a long rest before you can level up. I mean, all of that's good. And I guess I don't have the strength of my convictions to actually implement any of those things because, you know, part of Dungeons and Dragons is that it's a power fantasy and leveling up is, is I think a little bit cheapened if you have to wait a month in order to get the benefits of it or even overnight. So Anyway, um, when the players do uh, travel either from the Elf Songs Tavern or the Basilisk Gate, it's probably going to take them a couple of hours uh, in order to get to the bathhouse, which is their next stop. The bathhouse is not in the upper city, but it's still quite luxurious and beautiful and has this wonderful garden with all of these uh, fountains and it's very pretty and, you know, there's people milling about. There are some guards that do look fairly serious and... Um, you can certainly talk to them and, and they will be fairly non-committal. But my team had a hilarious, um, you know, whole session, whole hour long, you know, where they were taking massages and they were, you know, uh, enjoying the baths and somebody even found a fountain and made holy water, which will, you know, which was very useful in the, in the adventure underneath. But they, they did spend quite a lot of time here. And I think there was a part of me that was going, you know, they're asking all of these questions, they're hanging around, they're heavily armed, they're heavily armoured, they're clearly, you know, odd-looking odd people to be at a, at a bathhouse. Um, maybe this is the time when they've asked one question too many and it would start a fight. I didn't go down that route because they were all having so much fun and, and in the end of the day I think that's what it's, it's, it's really there for. So I let them, you know, enjoy the bathhouse and, and have all that fun and, 
interrogate masseuses who don't know anything. I, I, guess, I guess they don't know anything. You know, you could play it a different way where they are in on the whole, the whole. You know, this is a front for the organisation that lives underneath. But totally up to you. Um, so once they do get through this section and go down the stairs here. Uh, this is a really good opportunity to start to shift the narrative. And what I mean by that is, is they're in a beautiful, palatial, luxurious kind of scenario. And when they start going down these stairs, it's dank, it's smelly, it's the sewer. They need to, you know, start thinking about um, uh, light sources for people who don't have dark vision. And you're two foot deep in, in basically sewer water. So I think that that is a really good opportunity as a DM. If you want to do something like shift the lighting or, uh, you know, the physical lighting in the room or, you know, kick in with a, a sirenscape sound set of the sewers, that really helps change the mood a little bit. And so does this next bit. I was actually quite fortunate in, in my players didn't go down this route, but went down the other route and they found the secret door and entered the other section. And what sits in there is what I'm going to call a context item. And I use context items in just about every game that I, that I play, every system that I play. They are wonderful for setting the mood of, of what's about to come. And I would really encourage you to, everybody to think about them. Obviously, the designers of this did think about this because what you find in Room D6 is a bloated corpse lying face down in the, um, in the water. And uh, this isn't a battle. It's not a, you know, it's not going to jump up and be a zombie or anything like that. Uh, it's just a creepy, odd, weird, frightening thing, you know. And when they inspect it a little bit further, they also find that there are stab marks in the back of, of this and uh, this person has clearly been murdered by, b from behind by someone he probably knew. So this gives you a really creepy vibe to, to the whole thing, and it certainly started to set the edge of the teeth, the, my, the, the teeth on edge of the players that I was playing with. So I would heartily recommend you, I'm, I'm even considering next time I play this, to move that corpse into that first room to make sure that uh, the people come across it. The rest of the of the dungeon, I won't go into too much detail about the ins and the outs of it. Um, definitely players are going to need to rest once, probably twice, before they finish it. My team certainly did. They had a short rest and then a long rest uh, further in. So there's definitely a lot of danger and a lot of battles that are going to, quite t to tax them quite dramatically. Um, my favourite one is in D12, where you have... Two, there's a, a, a altar of Baal, a Bane or Baal, Bane here, and there are there are two people, Kazira and what's the other guy's name, Yignath, and they're basically torturing a prisoner, and um, this is a really cool fight, and you know there's javelins being thrown and and all sorts of stuff, um, but what I found amusing was at the end of the fight, uh, there's a, a statue, an armor, a suit of armor there. And it has these two gauntlets that are magical. And as soon as you touch them or, or try to unchain the prisoner that they're torturing, the, um, the, the gauntlets fly off. And they're basically like flying swords. They do the same damage and are basically the same thing, but they're just mailed fists. Um, and it's a great kind of, you know, almost comedic uh, moment to this, to this very serious room. 
Um, I missed it. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, they. They. I believe that they had unshackled the prisoner, and that's when these things are supposed to activate. But I made them activate when they were, you know, um, futzing around with it and and, and testing it. Um, and my team had the hilarious idea of taking a a bag of holding and basically El Toro bull rushing the uh, the the fists into it and capturing them and using them later. I thought that was hilarious, and I didn't. I can't even remember how I, if I made them make rolls or anything like that. But um, I think it was an opposed grapple check or something. Um, it's one of those moments where you go, "Gee, as a demon, you go, how do I, how do I, <laughs> figure this out?" So um, that was really funny. I loved, I loved the ingenuity, and it's one of those moments where you kind of go, "Far out!" I would never have thought of that as a player, and that's what makes this game so wonderful and enjoyable for me. So really enjoyed that that section. Um, the next bit that I wanted to talk about was this area of D18. There's a gas build-up here that um, it doesn't say it, it doesn't have a description in the book about this, but it does say that it, there's a rotten egg smell in here. And um, you have a DC Wisdom 10, DC 10 Wisdom Survival Check roll to see if you can recognize that this is a flammable area. Um, before you go into it and, and you know extinguish light sources that you that you have that produce a, a flame or create a spark um, I think the game's designers wanted to make that a fairly easy roll because you know if you've got a party of four or five somebody's going to roll above 10 on a, on a wisdom check and um, I think I think there's definitely a uh, um, you know, you, you can be fairly easy with the with the players there. I don't think this is meant to be a trap. I think this is more, more, much more meant to be a way of destroying the the temple, um, which is what my team used it for, rather than a trap for the players. So that's that area. Uh, going through here, you you eventually get to this choke point. There's a secret door that you need to find in order to to get to the rest of the thing. It's not a difficult thing to find because there's a guard sitting outside it and, and, and guarding the secret door. So, um, you know, it's just a normal corridor otherwise and there's this dude standing there for, for no apparent reason. So I think, again, uh, th there's a big hint there on behalf of the, uh, the designers that this is an important juncture. And once you get into there, you come across a guy called Mortlock Van Thampur. And Mortlock is a great character. I loved playing him. He's got this gravelly voice and his, his face is all scarred because someone threw him in a fire when he was a boy. And so I had a lot of fun uh, playing up this character and making him really interesting. And, and uh, I think he's really there. He's absolutely there designed to um, help the players get through the next chunk of the game. So it's really good that you, you save him. He's in a pitched battle that he's losing against a Baal cultist and um, he becomes your friend and confidant and you know you need to help him uh, kill the, the bad guy who scarpers off into the next room. Um, the next bit with him, uh, the, the fight with the bad guy is, I, I wouldn't say that's particularly hard. Um, my team had picked up another another character along the way um, and uh, so they have you know essentially six people fighting in the group if you include this this character that they've befriended and Mortlock and Mortlock is no slouch you know they healed him up and put him back into the battle and uh, they they um, killed the, ba the Baal cultist 
So then once that's done, uh, you can investigate the rooms that, that you've, around the rooms that the Mort, you found Mortlock in. There's a bunch of treasure there. There's a bunch of, um, uh, you know, stockpiles of weapons and things like that. And you can get to see what some of the Baal cultists, the, the, the dungeon of the, the Cult of the Dead Three were amassing in order to, you know, sow discord amongst the city. And this is actually something that you kind of need to play up into that the... the, the, the Dungeon of the, the the Cult of the Dead Three were sowing discord in the city for a very specific reason. You know they were amping up the levels of anxiety and and anger in the city for their own political purposes, um, so that it would be more easy for Baldur's Gate to be dragged down into Avernus, like what happened to Eltruel. So you don't need to be explicit about it, but you do need to to note that. All of this equipment is being used to sow discord and, and mistrust in Baldur's Gate. It's important for the overarching story. The players may not get it right at this point, but it's it's worth noting to them and uh, and just making sure that they're aware that, that this sort of thing is going on. Uh, then you can just leave the, you know, the, the cult is broken up. You can just leave the dungeon at that point. My, keen, my people were very keen to just annihilate it and wipe it off the face of the earth so they set up a very elaborate kind of cute trap where one of the alchemists robots would go down into the uh, holding a candle into the, the gas and blow it up so that was fun and then there's this really weird thing and it even it even seems weird in the book it says surprise dragon cultists and at the end of at the end of it these uh, cult of Tiamat people just appear and try and attack you. Now, there is reasoning for this in the overarching story. Some of the uh, money that they ha are paying the dragon, the cultists of the Dead Three to sow discord, some of that money came from Bar uh, Tiamat's treasure hoard, and these guys are here to get it back. But it seems shoehorned in and it's a bit weird and I didn't deal, I didn't bother with it because it just seemed like an excuse to have another fight and I, I, I didn't feel like it had a lot. Of, it, I, I know that there are elements later on, but I don't know. I, we haven't seen these guys since the Horde of the Dragon Queen and I feel, to, I feel like dragging them back into this felt like a, a, you know, a weird homage to a, a, an adventure uh, long past. So... I don't. I didn't see the need to put them in, and and uh, and, and didn't. You're welcome to um, if it makes more sense. If you want to play out the dragon cult, um, but I think they had their shot in in Horde of the Dragon Queen and Rise of Tiamat, so I didn't bother. So that's it. That is Descent to Avernus DM's Guide Part Two. Please like, subscribe, and comment. Uh, would love to hear what you thought of this and what I missed or what I did wrong. Um, more than happy to debate my my uh, dming style with anyone so please um feel free to put your put those in the comments below thanks everybody talk to you next time hello dice stormers and welcome to descent into avernus a dm's guide part three um, it's blowing a gale here in Sydney, so if you do hear some wind uh, rustling through your speakers, that's just my side, and, and don't worry about it too much. So, um, We're still in the COVID-19 lockdown, so 
Um, I'm doing a bunch of these videos from home by myself and I just thought that I would you know, put down some notes and thoughts about how I was running Descent into Avernus in case anybody was interested. Um, if you do like these videos, please like, subscribe and comment and make sure you turn on the notifications bell so that you get notified when I post new videos because I'll hopefully be going through the entire adventure giving these notes out. So, um, we're at the part where the players have dealt with the Dungeon of the Dead 3 and they've befriended a wonderful character by the name of Mortlock Van Thampur or Pier or however you figure out how to say it. Now, uh, Mortlock is the son of one of the most influential people in the city, but he's not a very happy son, and his mother is not very happy with him. So it's um, a bit of a, a fraught relationship, and Mortlock has basically uh, decided that he's had enough. He's, um, they've made friends with the dungeon of the, the Cult of the Dead Three, and he's been down there, and it looks like um, his mother and brothers, or one or two of them, have decided to pay the, the Baal cultists to try and kill Mortlock. And he's taken that as a sign that he needs to get out of Baldur's Gate before uh, he's, he's assassinated. So you've saved his life, so he's indebted to you, and he gives you the next piece of the puzzle, and that's that the power behind the Cult of the Dead Three is, in fact, the Van Thamper family, and they are sowing all of this discord in... Baldur's Gate for some nefarious purpose, of which he's not really very au fait. So he gives you the, the clues uh, that you can go and confront his mother, the Duke, and uh, her name is Duke Thalamara Van Thamper, but he suggests that you don't confront her without leverage. He wants to flee Baldur's Gate as quickly as possible. And it's only through a sort of a, a fairly meaty charisma check that he will stick around and, and help you if, uh, if you give him a good reason. So reasons abound, to be honest. You can help, he can help uh, take down his own family and cause his brothers and mother um, distress and loss of you know, life or, or liberty or at least money. So he's willing to help you do that. And... Uh, he suggests that you use his brother, Amric Van Thamper, for leverage. And his brother exists or holds business each night at the Low Lantern, which is basically a ship that's, that's moored in the harbour permanently. And um, he suggests you go there and uh, capture Amric and uh, use him to help... Uh, negotiate with your mother, with his mother. So Amric is not going to come uh, lightly and and there are there are this is where the game gets very sort of sandboxy. You know, it's it's been there's been quite some quite good sandbox elements up until this point, but here is where it really opens up and says you can kind of take this and, and deal with these situations however you like. So he's doing business at the Lone Lantern you can go there, have a chat to him. He thinks you're there to borrow money like everybody else. And there's a, you know, a good way to kind of get to know him and uh, figure out his movements. The trouble is that there are three, uh, I guess you would call them um, imps that are in the service of his brother who are invisible and who watch everybody who comes and goes from this uh, tavern, the Low Lantern. And 
This is a picture of the lowland, and I'm not sure who this is, but I think it might be Ray Amantamorn, which we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. Up above in the riggings of the low lantern, the imps uh, hang out and they kill any seagulls that happen by their way and just let their carcasses fall to the, the um, deck of the low lantern, which I think is quite, quite funny. But when the players get there, they can actually investigate the corpses of the, of the seagulls and figure out that they've been stung to death with a fairly decent um, nature roll. Um, it's worth remembering that whatever the players do from this point on, they're always being watched by the imps. I forgot about this, and I, I think it was probably to, to my detriment. Here is Amrik. Um, I wanted to show you a picture of him because this is a wonderful pose. There's some fantastic art all throughout this adventure. And Amrik is um, a very smooth, suave kind of fellow. I, I, I really don't like him very much, but the wonderful thing about him is that his charisma modifier is added to his armor class. So he's so charming, it makes it harder to hit. And I just think that's a wonderful aspect to this horrible character because um, I don't know how it mechanically works in real life, but I, I, I think it's, I think it's um, hilarious and, and awesome. So how you deal with Amrit is completely up to the players. You can kill him, you can uh, capture him at the Low Lantern, um, he's got some really good escape methods. Read his character very carefully because it's, it's, it's kind of worthwhile to know how he can evade the characters and, and, and get away from them. Um, you can accost him on his way home from the, from the uh, Low Lantern. So there's, there's all sorts of different opportunities. Just remember that the imps are always watching. Um, my team accosted him as he was uh, after he'd left the Low Lantern. And they set up an ambush in the street, and there was, um, yeah, a, a sort of a pitched battle in the middle of the street. Should the, the Flaming Fists have shown up and kind of taken sides? I, I don't know. Um, I chose not to, and, and I chose that they could, you know, sort of capture Amrik and take him off to wherever they needed him to go. And um, so that was, that was how my team dealt with Amrik. It's very sandboxy, it's very open-ended, and the way that your team might be handling him would be very different. I'd just say, you know, give the, give the uh, module quite a thorough read because it gets quite interesting at this point. So then, after that, we've got um, oh, Raya Mantelmorn. I, I forgot to mention Raya. So Raya is a person who will approach you at the Low Lantern if you've seen, if you've seen there talking to Amrik or scoping him out. She's sort of divined through whatever senses she has as a paladin that you are good guys, and she will approach you after the, after the conversation that you've had with Amrik and ask to help or join your party or, or do whatever. And she's kind of in a bit of a tough spot because she escaped or she, she uh, watched as Eltruel fell as the companion light went out and she fled to Baldur's Gate and managed to get in just before they locked the city and had all the people uh, stuck outside. So she was, uh, she's wanted, she's, she was in a pitched battle and managed to unfortunately kill or wound some flaming fists and as a result there are people very keen on her capture. So if she comes with you, you kind of need to remember that as well. Another thing I forgot. So, um, 
If you go to the Vantham Per Villa, there's kind of three sections to it. There's the first floor, the second floor, and there's a little kind of tiny um, parapet at the, at the top of it. And on that second floor, the rather sickly brother of, of Amric and Mortlock, whose name I am absolutely forgetting at the moment, is Thirstwell. So Thirstwell is on the second floor. The villa is really interesting because they go to great lengths to say that there's lots and lots of opulent things in the villa, but none of them fit together. It's like someone with no taste and a whole bunch of money made a, made a, a, a mansion. And so, um, you know, there's, there's uh, tapestries on the wall and rugs that don't match. And, you know, there's all of these things that individually are quite expensive, uh, but, you know, clash with each other when you put them all together in the same room. Uh, First World kind of basically lives in the villa and uses his imps to spy on the city. And um, I think my team didn't go up to the top levels of the villa, so I, I don't know, you know how important it is to really meet him. Again, the sandbox nature of the game says that you, know, you can go up there and you can get this puzzle box that, that he's got and that you can't open. And that could be your next clue. Or you can go down into the uh, catacombs underneath and uh, find the shield of the Hidden Lord, which I'll go into next. Down underneath the catacombs is, is this guy. He is Thavius Krieg. And he used to be the dude who ran uh, um, Eltravel. So why didn't he go down with the city? Why didn't he go down with the ship? Well, he knew what was coming. So he was the guy who originally did a deal with the devils in order to uh, protect uh, Eltruel. And when that time was up, he conveniently uh, left the city and he's now living underneath the, the manor. So here's a, a, a shot of the catacombs underneath the manor. And... There's some great encounters here. Uh, the most important ones are here, where we have um, uh, Duke Thalamara. Isn't it interesting uh, that they, they've used, they've called her a duke and not a duchess? Um, I guess, uh, I did, I've never heard of anybody um, using duke as a non-gendered term, uh, but I, I think it's quite cool. So she's wonderful and impressive, and she used to, um, you know, clean the sewers of Baldur's Gate, and she's uh, amassed a small fortune and has grown up to uh, be one of the most powerful people in the city. So she's absolutely uh, carried the whole thing throughout her entire career. And um, she's survived three husbands and she's had three sons and uh, she has different feelings about all of them. Uh, my team actually cornered her and, and said, you know, uh, we've, we've killed Amric or we've, got, we've captured Amric and Mortlock has left the city and she said, well, I have a third son. And they were like, are you sure? And so they kind of, I kind of didn't take the advice that was in the, the module where it says that Thalamara will fight to the death and she's absolutely, you know, there is under, under no circumstances will she negotiate with the players. My players were kind of having fun talking to her, so I, I let that play out. 
And I think it was a, a kind of an interesting and satisfying way to wrap up the story. She gets to be uh, alive still, and I'm going to, you know, probably use her later on in the adventure to kind of, you know, they were kind to Thalamara, and, and I think that's going to come back to bite them. If there's ever an opportunity that you can have to let a big bad guy slip away or negotiate their way out of a, a situation or prey on the good graces of the players, um, I think that's a really great way of using that to have them come back into the story at some point at a later date. Never underestimate the power of a returning bad guy. I, I think they're, they're wonderful. So uh, they found underneath the villa in the catacombs, Thaddeus Krieg, who is sitting there talking to the shield of the Hidden Lord. And the shield of the Hidden Lord is this beautiful, um, bright, shining golden shield that has this kind of grimacing face on it. And it looks like the perfect um, battle, uh, you know, uh, shield for a, a, a paladin or a tank or, or, or anything like that. So it's definitely something that the party desires. Uh, but what they don't realize when they first get it is that there is a demon trapped within inside it, and that demon at at, at any point can choose to speak to somebody who has uh, bonded, who has um, uh, what do you call it when you uh, when you bond with a magic item? Um, I've forgotten the name. When you when you attune yourself to a, a magic item, uh, the 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 demon trapped with inside it can then talk to you. And he initially offers much help uh, if you take the shield back to uh, Avernus. And he says, I know my way around Avernus. I can help you find what you need. I'm, I'm going to be your guide and your confidant and all of that sort of stuff. And it's all lies. All he wants to do is because he can't escape the shield on the prime material plane. But he wants to, uh, but he thinks that he can escape it if he's on Avernus, and he may be right. So that is, uh, once you have either the, the puzzle box or the shield of the Hidden Lord, um, Rhea Mantelmon or anybody else uh, that, that, you know, that, the, uh, that they've come across can kind of give the hint that the next best thing to do is to go and visit Candlekeep and get either of these two items identified and uncovered as to as to what you can do with them and, and where the battle meet, leads next. So Candlekeep is the next stop. Um, there's quite a, 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 a traveling time in order to get there. Um, by the time your players uh, get to the manor, they need to be third level. So that's always a good thing to remind yourself. And other than that, I think... Um, you know, this is a really sort of sandboxy, fun part of the adventure. So, you know, listen to your players and, and go with where they're leading you and, uh, and have fun with it. Thanks for watching. Please like, subscribe, comment and turn on the notifications bell. And I'll see you next time.